Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Hey, everybody. It's good to be here. It's Deacon Patrick. Hey, Patrick. How are you today? It's good to be with you. Well, Dennis, good day. It is a beautiful day in the neighborhood every day, and it's good to be seen and heard by everyone. So Yeah. Well, thank God you're here, because the rest of those bozos flaked off on us. They're out deaconing. Oh, yeah, sure. That's their story. <laughs> As they say on the in the network news, they're on assignment. <laughs> Not from us, but from, you know, their wife or somebody or their boss, whatever. So so it's just us today, and uh, the two amigos here, and uh, we have some interesting people to talk about that Patrick is going to. So I think you need to do the introduction. Yeah, Dennis, today our guests are Len and Cheryl Ann Gengel, and they are recipients of the Isaac Hecker Award for Social Justice. They're going to receive that on Saturday, November 18th at 5 p.m. So you can tune in to the YouTube channel of the Paulus Center in Boston to see that happening at the Vigil Mass. And the reason they got the award is their daughter, Brittany Gengel, was a typical teenage girl back in 2010, away at college, and she decided she wanted to go on a mission trip to Haiti, and they knew it would change her life. And unfortunately, it changed her life in ways nobody anticipated, as she was a victim of the earthquake in Haiti that killed over 300,000 people in 2010. So they have taken that tragedy and turned it into something more beautiful than anybody could ever imagine in fulfilling Brittany's last wish that was texted to her mother just a few hours before the earthquake. So they have built an orphanage and are taking care of the children of Haiti and giving them a chance for a better life. So it's really an inspiring story. They have a website, belikebrit.org, and a book that tells their story. And I'm not ashamed to say I cried several times reading the book having children of my own that are Brittany's age. Yeah, and I've, they lost their daughter in the earthquake in 2010. I've sent my daughters to Haiti uh, on mission work in their teenage years, and I feel for them as like the worst thing that could happen. In 2010, that earthquake, our diocese, my home diocese of Norwich, has a mission house in Port-au-Prince, and that collapsed, killed several of our people down there too. So it's been a real tragedy and uh, so they've really built this beautiful place that you can see on be like org, which is b-e-l-i-k-e-b-r-i-t it's their daughter brit dot org it's a beautiful place state-of-the-art earthquake proof solar panels these people have built a gem for these orphans it is really impressive just go on that site well run it's just very good. But, the, you know, it's a touching thing that, in, 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 that they made this beautiful thing out of this tragedy, and they did it, and they don't, you know, they're too humble to say this, but if you know anything about the history of Haiti, from the time of that earthquake in 2010 till now, it has been the seventh circle of hell and descending. It is the worst it has ever been. There's no government. There are gangs. You know, more people are dying than are dying in wars going around the world. It's just the infrastructure shot. It's just unbelievable that those are the conditions under which they built this beautiful place 
for some of the many orphan children. So, I mean, it's a real, it's a real miracle and a testimony to these people who did this in honor of uh, their daughter, Brittany. Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough the utter desolation that was there after the earthquake. Haiti didn't have much infrastructure to begin with, and what little was there was, you know, taxed beyond anything, and they just, through all of that struggle, have managed to make this very beautiful building. And you can see in the pictures and the video of the smiling children that's on their website, they're doing the Lord's work. They are really a blessing. And they took that, you know, tragedy and turned it around. And not to make light of anything that they've been through, but that cliche of God pulling something great and good out of something horrific really rings true with their story. Right. It's not a cliche. It's a central mystery of faith that the Paschal mystery that Jesus dies and then he rises and we're called to die and rise with him. And that's not just physical death, but it's all the the deaths and the tragedies of our lives and the good that comes out of it. And, and, you know, we believe that mystery because of people like Glenn and Cheryl Ann who demonstrate the truth of this, that look at this beautiful thing that has come out of the worst thing, much like Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection. And, you know, we see it throughout history that, you know, I don't know, like uh, all the many hospitals that were built in this country by nuns, which are the first hospitals, pretty much anywhere you have a hospital now, the first one was put there by the sisters. Well, they all came here and did that because they were persecuted in Europe. Yeah. Like the worst thing they could have imagined, you know, we're French and the government is shutting us down and they get on a boat and they come to America and they start a new chapter. Well, you know, they, what they have built in America these sisters, for example, of colleges and orphanages and, you know, the, just the structure and the size and everything is beyond anything they had in the old country, whether it was France or Italy or wherever. But, you know, it's the dying and rising. And, you know, it's the central mystery of faith. And here it is being played out again in the lives of these two, two lovely people who suffered a, just a horrific tragedy. And it's being done the way Jesus did. It's an encounter one-on-one. One person reaching out to another person over and over again, not waiting for somebody else to come in and do it, but getting out boots on the ground, as they say, getting their hands dirty and falling in love with everybody. And it's a lot of people that made this happen. These people are not Rockefeller or something. They started, they had, they put something into it. And all the friends of their daughter and, you know, the schools and all these, this is a, you know, it takes a village kind of thing. A lot of people, a lot of volunteers, a lot of expertise donated. It's just a, a little kingdom of God kind of thing. This is the way the world can be. It doesn't have to be the seventh circle of hell, which is all around this little piece of the kingdom where people are loved just because they're people and in the works of mercy are done every day in an orphanage. So yeah, people of faith can definitely see in their story, the hand of God guiding them along the way and putting the right people in at the right time and bringing the resources together to really make something seemingly impossible, a miracle happen. Yes. And in a short period of time, again, go to the website and look at this thing, folks. This is really, this is not a lean to somewhere. This is a well thought out 
Yeah, it's a 19,000 square foot building. Yeah, it's, you know, with solar panels and, you know, it's self-sustaining because there's no electricity working half the time in uh, Haiti, you know, there's no gasoline and, uh, you know, you got to go through the gangs to uh, get groceries. Anyways, they're growing food. They're doing the whole thing, but it's, I don't know what it's like, a little bit like, it's like the monasteries in the, in the, in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages where they were like, you know, you had the chaos swirling around them, but all along the places was, no, this is a place where we, we do what Jesus said and we help other people and we sustain ourselves, you know, and And to speak to the hard work and character, the people that they encountered along the way, there's a story in their book about how the truck bringing the rebar up the mountain to the building site tipped over and this valuable steel was laying in the road, you know, thousands of pounds of it. And their, their manager on site, rallied these hundred or so workers they had and they carried that steel the rest of the way by hand so that it wouldn't fall prey to thieves because they knew if they left it out it would be stolen and you know they did that without being asked it's just another day in haiti and this same manager later on they hired all these haitian workers they would wire transfer the funds for payday so when payday came len would do a wire transfer one day he's reviewing the books as he did every week and he sees five thousand dollars unaccounted for in the wire transfer histories in, in the bank account and he says where did this money come from i can i don't know and his manager tells him len the wire transfer was late it was friday the workers needed their money. So I took my money and gave it to them. You can pay me back when you have the time. That's the spirit of the Haitian people. And that's what they're nurturing. That self-giving, we're all in it together and making the world a better place. Yeah, even under the most adverse circumstances, there's always there's so many good people in the world. You know, we just get we just lose sight of that with the twenty four seven bad news that we get in all our social media and our, you know, legacy yeah. media and stuff. But there's so if a, you just a lot of... if you can't turn your cell phone off, if you can't get away from it, go to BeLikeBrit.org, watch their documentary. It might not change your life, but it'll change your outlook just a little bit. Lift your mood. What's the name of the book, Patrick? The name of the book is Heartache and Hope in Haiti, The Brittany Gangle Story. And it was written by Len and Cheryl Ann, Brittany's parents. And it is, like I said, it is a, a heart-wrenching tale of, you know, hope, faith, and love. And it's available on Amazon or whatever? It's on Amazon. It's uh, available in Kindle form or in print. And the proceeds go to the Be Like Brit Foundation. Oh, the proceeds go to the foundation. So there you go. It's a twofer. You can give some money to the foundation by buying the book. So we recommend that. And with that, and thank you, Patrick, for that background. Let's talk to Cheryl Ann and Len and meet these wonderful people. Let's do it. It's great to be here with Cheryl Ann and Len Gengel. I was reading your book and immediately struck by so many similarities with my own life and experience. And 
just as I read the introduction, I was floored, the dedication, because I went on a trip to Jamaica with Food for the Poor, and Leanne Chong was our leader. Oh, my God. And that was in 2014. I remember her making reference to the trip to Haiti when we started our trip. It didn't really hit me then. Mm -hmm. But why don't you tell us where you started and where this journey began for you with your daughter and her mission trip to Haiti? So Brittany grew up in a central mass in Rutland, Massachusetts, and uh, went to Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida. And we always say she was really smart because she wanted the warm weather. That's why she went to school there. And she had gone in as a communications major and wanted to use communications to help people. Uh, she had a great heart. She wasn't perfect, but she had a great heart and really wanted to help people. And then come her sophomore year, she said, you know, Mom, I really want to be a social worker. And the year before at her school, Food for the Poor, um, the uh, one of the trips was with Food for the Poor to Jamaica, like you had just mentioned, and her best friend Lindsay had gone on that trip. And thus her sophomore year, the trip was to Haiti, and they had decided that they would, where Britt wanted to become a social worker, that's, you know, be great way to help people and get involved. And she went to Haiti. And honestly, she fell in love with the people of Haiti. They arrived on Monday, January 11th, and they went to an all-girls orphanage. They went to a, did a feeding program. They went to a handicapped orphanage. And I was very fortunate to speak to Brittany on the phone, text and email. And she had relayed to me and her dad that she really fell in love with the country of Haiti and especially the people and, of course, the children. But honestly, she was heartbroken by what she saw, the poverty. They try to prepare you the best that they can for the poverty that they're going to see, but it was totally overwhelming for her. And she had sent me a text message that said, you know, they love us so much and everyone is so happy. They love what they have and they work so hard to get nowhere, yet they're all so appreciative. I want to move here and start an orphanage myself. And so three hours after I received that text message, Haiti had a 7.0 earthquake where over 300,000 people were killed instantly. And our family didn't know if Brittany was one of them. And we needed to wait and wait. The Thursday after the earthquake, we received a message from Lynn University that said, you know, we have them. We have the, it was called Journey of Hope, which she had gone on. We have them come down to Florida tonight. And so Len and I and the boys, we jumped on a plane and went to Florida and thinking we were going to be able to grab Brittany and hug her and bring her home. And we showed up there. And unfortunately, the uh, president and others came down and said, I'm sorry, we had bad intelligence. We don't have Brittany. And they also didn't have three other students and two professors, but they had eight of, others, eight of the students. And from that moment on, our family did everything possible to try to get Brittany home thinking that, you know, communication was down and, you know, it was obviously an earthquake. And we knew if anyone was going to survive, it was going to be Brittany because we figured we couldn't get in touch with her. She was helping and, and play all these games in your head. And then our family waited for 33 days, not so patiently. And we just waited. And 33 days later, which ended up being Valentine's Day, Len and I received a phone call that no parent ever wants and that they, in fact, had recovered Brittany's body. And she was, in fact, one of those that was killed during the Haiti earthquake. 
And for us, I think that we look at that text message as really a gift from Brittany that she gave us a reason to go on along with our boys, Bernie and Richie. And we have wanted to honor her last wish by making it come true. And thanks to literally thousands of people from all over the world, and especially here in Massachusetts, but literally all over the world, we have been able to do that. And I'll let Len take it from there because it's been this coming January, it'll be 14 years. And though it started out about Brittany, it has become so much more about healing our hearts, but really helping the people of Haiti, which is what Brittany wanted to do. Yeah, that was an awful earthquake. We have my home diocese of Norwich. We oh. have a mission house in uh, Port-au-Prince. Oh, okay. It collapsed and killed three of our people, too. I'm so, sorry. Yeah, so we're all sorry. <laughs> and then we have one of our doctors who runs a, a clinic up in Jeremy. He's just down 395 from you, Cheryl Ann. He's in Norwich, Connecticut, oh, okay. that's where I'm talking about. It's right down the road that we have a ongoing relationship and many of the parishes do with parishes in Haiti, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. And it's, it was a terrible thing. My condolences for your loss. And I had two of my daughters worked in Haiti when they were teenagers. Was, they went with that doctor to Jeremy, to the Haitian Health Foundation. And yeah, it's, it's tough. I really, my heart goes out for you. You know, in those 33 days, I think it was day 10, I flew into Haiti and saw hell on earth and smelt it. And I'll never forget the smell. It's funny. I can't remember Bishop's last name. He since passed away, maybe Harrington, but he called me and he said, Len, what can I do for you? And I said, pray for me that I get that smell out of my head after I returned from Haiti. And that smell of death is something that you just will never forget. We weren't in Haiti more than 24 hours, but when we came out, I knew she was gone. And I told Cheryl, you know, it was, there was nothing we could do, but to honor her. And in those 33 days, fortunately for us, uh, about, about $115,000 from nowhere, from no one we knew was sent to us just in fives, tens, and twenties saying, you know, make her wish come true. So we felt as her parents an obligation to build something to honor her in Haiti. And thus the Be Like Bread Foundation was formed and we decided to create a nonprofit. And with the help of family and friends, we developed a plan and shaped in the letter B. And it's 30, it's for 33 boys and 33 girls, symbolic of the 33 days Britt was missing. And it's 19,000 square feet in honor of her 19 years. It has six missionary rooms in honor of the six that perished, the four daughters and two professors. And we, we just feel very strongly that this is something as a family we wanted to do. We had two boys at the time, 14 and 17. And as their dad, I felt that we needed to show them that out of something so horrific, we could build something so beautiful to honor their sister and to have purpose. And that's what we did.
And it took us two years to do it. And on January 5th, 2013, 70 family Brits friends from kindergarten to college boarded a plane with us and we flew into Haiti and had two buses waiting and we bussed out to Grand Guave where we built Brit's home and celebrated that weekend and honored Brit's memory. And then about three weeks later on Brit's birthday, we brought our first child in. And it was during building, I was a home builder developer for 30 years, and it was during that time of building Brit's home, I made 39 trips from Boston in those two years. And if you've been to Haiti, you know, you lose your stomach very quickly. So I would stay as long as I could until my stomach told me it was time to go home. And, and, you know, and went back and forth and built the orphanage with about a hundred Haitian employees. And we actually built the first earthquake proof structure post earthquake in the country of Haiti. And something I'm proud of, we were actually awarded by, uh, McGraw Hill, which makes a engineering news of record, gave us an award in 2013 as the international building of the year. So we were very honored. And uh, yeah, and it's beautiful. Your you. website is spectacular. What Give the listeners the website so they can look at maybe what you're talking about, because this is really an outstanding project. It's just well done. Thank you. It's uh, Be Like Brit, B-E-L-I-K-E, Brit, B-R-I-T dot org. And that'll bring you right there. And you'll see now we have a guest house next to Brit's home. And then we have a transition home for our 18 plus children that are there that are still finishing high school. And what's the purpose of the transition home? Just so everybody understands. Well, one of the greatest failures of orphanages in Haiti, and I speak from, you know, being there for 13 13 years, is a a child turns 18, and whether they're done school or not and prepared for life, they're put outside the gate. That's the law. So what I did, or we did, but I built it, we purchased land next to Brit's home and connected it, and so we have the transition home budding Brit's home. So we make a spectacular line of all our kids and staff. And when they turn 18, we walk them through that applause and, and bring them to transition. And then we have a program that was developed by Cheryl and I, a couple of PhDs and very, we always have smarter people than ourselves volunteer. And we hired a Haitian American gal who just got her master's in sociology. And she came down for a year and spent, and we developed this program called the the Transition Bible. And it's about 30, I think 31 pages. And it basically takes our kids through the steps of preparing them for a life outside the gate, whether it be go to college and then find employment or go to trade school 
or go to the United States. It depends on their capabilities. So, but we give our children options. They're not just, they're our children. So we're very uh, committed to their success. You're very humble in what you're saying. You're just like, oh, we just went and we built this. And we just threw the building up. In the book, you talk about a little bit how challenging it is to build in Haiti. And maybe you can give our, our listeners a little bit more of a sense of what it's really like if they haven't been to a third world country, let alone the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. What the challenges are to actually do something like build a concrete block building. Well, in Haiti, after the earthquake, we had to start a block factory to actually make U.S. Uh, style block because one of the main reasons Haiti fell apart is they use, and I'll be technical for a minute, a six inch by 12 inch block with three holes in it, where a U.S. block is eight by 16 with two holes in it. So the, the block they were using to build their country is inferior. And so that was the first thing we had to do and test the concrete that we were making. And we, through, with the help of wonderful volunteers, I'll give you an example. When we started the block factory, one of the engineers that had worked on the structural for Breton had gotten either laid off or retired. I can't remember. And he called me up. He said, I got a month before my wife and I start traveling. Can I volunteer in Haiti? I said, well, geez, I'm, I'm starting a block factory. How would you like to put all systems in place for that and go down? And so that's God gave God's By God's grace, we ended up with the people we needed at the time we needed. So, yes, everything was a struggle. Everything was a challenge. But, you know, when you have the uh, heart and determination that we had to build something that was not going to fall down, and as we get further into the story, I can attest to that as well. Because I was there building stairs when the next earthquake hit in 2021, August 14th. And I assure you, the building did exactly what it was supposed to do. As you know, if you're affiliated with Jeremy, it hit Jeremy to Okai and, you know, devastated the area. So, but yes, we were right from starting making the block to getting clean water to actually drink while you were there building uh, was another challenge. And, you know, it, it just went on and on. And but we were, we persevered and we were blessed that it was a two-year process, but we got it done. Hey, Cheryl Ann, can you just, uh, for the listeners, can you just walk us through a little flow of what happens? You get a little kid in, I looked like you had some pre-K kids in your program, like before they were school age, and take uh, tell people what exactly happens all the way to the time they're, they're adults. What are the options? Because I see you have another option you're opening in Florida, which is interesting too. So could you just take an, uh, take an imaginary child through the process of the youngest child right out to adulthood when you release them into the wild, so to speak, so we see the overall picture? So one of our many goals from the beginning is for each child uh, to give each child opportunities and let them decide who they 
can be and want to be. And so when our first little ones came in, the youngest was like three years old. Uh, Shasha, who was our first child when he came in, who came in on Brittany's birthday. For instance, like someone like him, when the first little ones came in, or actually all of the children, what I should say is that, you know, the first thing that we had to do is that we had to deworm them. Most of them had worms. And so we had to deworm them and we needed to get the children healthy. And that meant, you know, three balanced meals a day, clean water, just literally the basic necessities to survive. And we feel very fortunate that we are able to provide that for all of our children. And so once the children are healthy and, you know, eating the three meals a day, we have a Brits Academy. We started our own school where all of our children attend Brits Academy. And it is a little bit different. So the older children, the children that came to us when they were older, that are now, say, 17, 18, 19, up to 21, their experience is a little bit different because when they came to us in Haiti, even though they have public school, you still have to pay to go to public school. So most of our older children did not go to school on a regular basis because there's no welfare system. There's no help. If you don't have money for food, if you don't have a job, which there's a huge unemployment, there's no welfare system. And so they don't have money for food. They're not paying for the children to go to school. So the older children probably maybe went to school for you know, a couple of months and then they didn't go for six months and then maybe they went for five months. And so their education is a little bit different. But for us, we want to make sure that they all at least graduate high school and then at least give them opportunities, whether or not, like Len had mentioned before, if they want to go on to college, if they want to possibly you know, work with their hands and, and different opportunities. But the younger ones that for the last, what is it, that we've actually been there 10 years of having them going to school, those children have had all consistent education which is exciting. And so they're going through school. And again, we want to have as many doors open as possible, and then they get to choose which one they're going to walk through. But they're our family, and uh, we feel we want to do right by them. We want to do right by Brittany. And of course, the community that we're a part of in, in Grand Guave, it's important for us to be to help our community as well. And so the kids, they're all, most of them, Help me, Len, I think seven of our children have now, I want to say, graduated from our home and are, are out on their own. But this past two years, we brought in 10 little ones, uh, which are lots of uh, new energy, which is exciting. And, you know, for us, it's always been about raising a generation of leaders in Haiti. So you get them, you tend to their needs when you first get the little kids, and then they go basically through high school? So our oldest right now are still, and our oldest that have been with us from the beginning, no one has actually graduated from high school yet. Our next year, our first three children will graduate from high school, four children, I'm sorry, thank you. Four children will graduate from high school and we're already looking, which is exciting. You know, do they want to go to colleges and we're going to be looking at colleges where they could possibly attend, what works? Do they want to stay in Haiti? Do they want to come here to the United States? And what, but really what's best for them. And so they, they are our children and they stay with us and we give them, always said what we've done for Brittany, Bernie and Richie, three children is, you know, nurturing, giving them an education, make sure they're loved, three balanced meals a day. You know, our children in Brit's home are extremely fortunate. 
And um, we want them to continue to be fortunate, but we also want them to be able to give back in the community. But the goal is you'll walk them through the basic schooling, through high school graduation, and then you have a transition program at 18 where you teach them how to be adults on their own. So I assume that's like finances or what does that entail? Exactly. And, and Len can probably talk a little bit more, but I, before Len takes over, I'll just say that you're exactly right. And part of the transition program, though, is for them, they're still Haitian children and they need to learn how to survive in Haiti. And so that's even like the, the trend part of the transition is, you know, going to the market there and learning how to shop in the market or locally and to there's not what we've done on wash machines and dryers and, you know, taking care of their clothing and the, the day-to-day of living in Haiti as a Haitian person. This is all new to us. Uh, it's new raising children. We've got a lot of experience. Our son, Richie, is 28. Our son, Bernie, is 31. So we're, we're very familiar with adolescence. And I have the pleasure of, of dealing with the 14 adolescents right now, 18 and above, because we wouldn't break up a family. So I can tell you that it is a long journey and we are taking it step by step to, you know, my sister used the analogy, you give a child a little more rope every time and we give them a little bit more freedom with responsibility. And that's our job, and we have two full-time a director and assistant director at Transition Housing, and we are uh, doing everything in our power to prepare them for life outside the gate. But the challenge is, and you know, and this is our reality. I'm not saying this happens everywhere, but if there is violence in the household outside the gate. How do you send your children home who are now adults, who are now trilingual? They speak English, French, and Creole. And now they go home and they're much smarter than their parents. They're much more worldly than their parents. And and when I say parent, it could be a grandparent. It could be an aunt. It could be an uncle. Whoever the leader of the household is that where they came from. and so. How do we prepare them for that? So one of the things we're doing, and I'll give an example, we had our first graduate at 22 years old, and we actually built him a house. And he built it with us, but as a home builder, one of the things that we've done is community projects, we've built 154 homes on the mountain. And those have gone to women mostly with children. So this is something that we're doing for our graduates is we are trying to, through our child sponsorship program, you know, to, to give them a strong start. And when we say house, it's a 12 by 24 home that has right. two. So I want to be clear on that as well. So, uh, <laughs> Not to be confused with anything in Hollywood, uh, right? No. Basic shelter. But that's a big deal in Haiti to have basic shelter. That's just. We've done that 154 times. And I can tell you both and anyone listening out there that the people we build these homes for 
have never had a key in their lives. So there's nothing more honorable than teaching that recipient, that person that you're blessing and teaching them how to use a key to give them that safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. you can't lock a, a lean-to with a cardboard box, box and a little bit of tin and a little bit of matting. There's nothing. To, because yeah. you're Haiti, you can picture what I'm oh, saying. Yeah. yeah, that that 8 by 12 you know, closer to most people's garage or tool shed maybe than and their house they're living in. That's yeah, if you've stuff. ever seen them, That's... they're very much reminiscent of the backyard shed you'd keep your lawnmower right. in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, But it's life-changing. And we give them a bed and they have a mattress, sheets. We give them cooking, not oven, but cooktop and pots and pans and basically a goat. And most people don't know this. In a third world country, the goat is the bank account. And for emergencies, if something happens, they can always go to the market and sell the goat. And this is what we've done, you know, and that's evolved and developed over time. But our first graduate, Fredo, is uh, actually staying and working for us at Brit's Home because our ultimate goal, and this is, I want to be very clear, our ultimate goal is to have the children we raise run and operate Brit's Home someday. That's great. Who better? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that one of the things in this country with all the problems in society especially with the homeless population, this and that, what they're finding is exactly what you're doing that, well, step one is to get these people a home and then you can do the mental health. You can do, you know, whatever else you need to do, but that's extremely effective as a base to, to, to do whatever. So, you know, that's a, that's probably the, uh, you know, a great thing uh, that you're doing for your graduates to make sure they're stable enough to have a shot at something, you know? have that home. I think of, and you know, I've been in Haiti, as I said, a a long time. And I think of Dr. Maslow's pyramid all the time. And, you know, Haiti is stuck in that physiological, that base. They haven't reached safety yet, that second pillar. And I just, you know, I want to start our kids when they come out with, you know, food, water, and shelter. And feel that they can accomplish. And so that's our goal. And if we can continue mm-hmm. that and have them be productive in their community, I think we've succeeded. Yeah. And it's like what Cheryl Ann said, you know, what you want for your own kids. It's okay. They're stable. They're making it. You know, that's why you do all the steps before that. And you want to make sure that they have that. So Cheryl, tell me, I'm intrigued about the Florida option that I saw on the website as a possibility. Is that up and running or is that still being put together? No, it's still being put together and it's an option. Unfortunately, right now it's going to be put on hold because of the situation going on in Haiti right now. But our goal is to someday have the kids come out and, you know, come to Florida or here in Massachusetts or wherever. But we're always thinking what's best for the children. And for right now, it's on hold. What was the idea behind it, though? So the idea behind it was really so that next step of the coming possibly to to the United States to go to college, I look at it as a study abroad program, but reverse to give them an opportunity for them to see life outside of Haiti, but really to expose them to different things in education as well, U.S. education, and then for them to 
have that experience and then bring it back to Haiti. And, and to follow up with what Cheryl Ann's saying, we started, you know, the idea of Florida just about the time that the president was assassinated. And as you know, Haiti itself has been closed and you just can't go into Haiti at this time because it's a level four do not travel. And, you know, to give you an idea, since January, and this is the UN, but since January 1st of this year, 3,000 people have been mur murdered in Port-au-Prince. That's more than the war in Ukraine. 1,500 people have been kidnapped since January 1st. And this is all anyone can Google the UN and what they report, you know, in the most recent, this was an October 3rd story that I'm quoting from. So, you know, and this is why we had to keep our focus on Haiti, because just like right now, the southern part of Haiti, you mentioned Jeremy, you've got to take route to go to Jeremy. Our orphanage and community is built right off of Route 2. Well, right now on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince on Route 2, uh, a little town called Mariani, not Montesson, that's been holding a toll booth for three or four years now. Mariani last week shut down the entire city and no tolls, no nothing. You cannot get to Jeremy. You cannot get to Okai. We call it Okai in Haiti, all because they want to collect tolls. And so it's so dangerous right they now. They being the gang leaders, not the government. Yeah. Oh, no, there is no government. No, I know. But um, you, everybody, <laughs> yes. you know, everybody doesn't know how bad this situation oh, yeah. is. So you need to uh, be specific there, Len. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let me be specific. There is no government. That's about in, covers it. Yeah. In the city of Port-au-Prince, according to the UN, there are over 200 gangs. And those 200 gangs are responsible for the 3,000 murders the 1,500 kidnappings since the beginning of this year. So they have shut down 3 million people in the city of Port-au-Prince. Challenging, to say the least. Yeah, we our listeners are somewhat familiar if they've listened to a previous pod not too long ago with the Jerry Straub, who runs Santa Chiara Orphanage down there. I don't know if you know Jerry. I don't, but I've heard his name. It's yeah, funny. he's doing good, good work. Yeah, he doesn't know. I was funny, you know, the number of people that's probably the difficulty of the situation, especially now, no doubt, but the number of times I say, well, gee, do you know this person? Do you know that person? And everybody's like, no, I don't know him. I said, gee, I, thought, I would think that, you know, you're all in the same business. There'd be some kind of network or something, you know, among the orphanages in the area or among the schools sure. or something. But apparently that's also an infrastructure that needs to be built, so... We have what's called expats page on Facebook for Haiti. And that's pretty much where all the networking is done. I'll go on there and say, looking for a French teacher, anybody have any knowledge of, you know, it, it works. It works for us in Haiti. It does help. But yeah, I know the name Jerry Straub. I just don't, I, I'll have to Google them after this. Well, you could listen, listen to our podcast. Len, don't I, be like that. Now you're on the podcast. 
Can I be very frank? This is the first podcast I've ever done, so oh. I've never done one well, before. Well, most of them are better than this, Len. Don't judge them all okay. too harshly based on this experience. Uh, this yeah, is, we're all still learning. Yeah, this is a ham and egg operation here, isn't it, Pat? Definitely. Yeah. My screens all just went blank in the middle of everything, so. Yeah, that's, that's okay. Funny. It's not a visual medium, so that's only a problem for us, Pat. Yeah. But, uh, yeah Dennis, no, you, you brought uh, up a, a good point um we all take for granted a lot of things you know we're just like well you you just do this you just do that or you know this person or why isn't there a network we would think well all the churches would get together or all the pastors of the various congregations would chat they just don't have the infrastructure there you can't just pick up the phone you know most of the people if they have a cell phone and the towers are working on the 3 hours of electricity that's running that day you know maybe they get a call through but it's not at all like we're used to and you know the website i saw had a britchnary and i'm probably butchering that a missionary <laughs> trip option which of course is closed down because of the, the situation in Haiti but really that's one of the things that is eye opening i know it was for me when i went I've been to several of the uh, Caribbean countries, both for work and as a missionary trip. And it's just the culture shock is so real and it is so different that everything that we take for granted is, you know, super special. Yeah, 100% right. And, you know, you have to prepare. We brought over 1,900 missionaries. And we like to say Britionary in honor of our Brit. And we started that program back in 2011 when I was building because we, I felt more, most importantly that people had to see this to believe it. They had to smell it. They had to touch it. And we needed help. So it really worked. I just couldn't wrap my arms around the fact that people would pay to come and work. In a third world country. There are good people in this world. It doesn't make yes. the news. And that's good yes. because the day it makes the news that there are people like Cheryl Ann and Len doing something unselfish for people that no one else cares about, then the world's really in trouble because it's not, oh, this is unusual. There are a lot of good people. You I know, agree. and again, just a number, just think about it, Len, where you are. It's interesting to me. I'm wondering why this is, but. I told you, Jerry Lowney and Jeremy, he runs the Haitian Health Foundation. He's from Norwich. And that's not the diocese. That's his own thing. The diocese runs the mission outreach there in Port-au-Prince. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know Frechette, uh, Dr. Uh, Rick Frechette, who's a pastor's yeah. priest. You know him? Yeah. He's, a, hey, yeah. Well, he's from hey. West Hartford. He's from yeah. West Hartford. So this is all... Within 50 miles right. of where you're sitting are yeah. all these Haitian connections that I know about. I find it interesting. And I, I bring up Frechette because he started off working in Mexico. Yeah. And then he went to, I think it was Honduras. And I read then he his got book. The, huh? I've read his book. Oh, I haven't. Cheryl Ann and I have met him personally with the chancellor. We brought the chancellor of UMass Medical into Haiti, and the first place we stopped from the uh, airport was Father Rick's. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, me, I know him. He gave I know me from hospital. 
Yeah. yeah, I know him from the Passionist place, the retreat house in West Hartford. Yeah. You know, he did a retreat for us, and that's where I met and talked to him. But to make your point, he so he worked in Mexico, mm-hmm. and then they said, well, if you want to see real poverty, I think, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think the next stop was like Honduras or someplace. Right. And he said he thought I was in the poorest place on this side of the globe, and someone said, oh, you haven't been to Haiti yet. And he said, I went to Haiti, and he said, the people in Mexico and Honduras are living the dream compared yeah. to these people. So yeah. that's why he stayed in, and he's a medical doctor and a priest from the Congregation of the Passion, a, a lovely man. So you know him. So that's one we know together. Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm a graduate of CCSU, so these towns you're talking, and my brother lives in West Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so I'm very to, familiar with the area. You're familiar with New Britain, huh? New Britain, <laughs> as we New Britsky, yeah. yeah. That's right. And well, that's great. So, but there is a lot of Haitian connection there, and it's quite interesting. It's so close to where you are. It's all different ways, so. Everybody does their piece in Haiti. We're doing ours and many yeah. others. It would be wonderful if we could have a collaborative site that we could all, you know, meet and mm. greet and share with on and it's just never able to happen but i have i want to give you the i'm going to be a prophet here for a moment thanks to elon musk and starlink everybody in haiti is going to have connectivity for the first time and we've had it for about two years uh which is amazing and our kids are becoming tech geniuses in haiti we've been blessed with some donors that wanted to see technology in the forefront of our educational system. And so we have a tech room that's state of the art. We have 24 seven electricity, thanks to 150 solar panels and about a hundred double batteries and a 60 KW generator that kicks on when the solar goes out. So where our goal has always been to be a hundred percent sustainable. Thanks to food for the poor that someone talked about earlier. We have a hundred fruit trees on the back acre of our property. And we have about an acre of garden plus a football slash soccer field on our site. So we've done everything. And under that soccer field is a hundred thousand gallon cistern. I designed and engineered everything from the roof water to the property water to flow. Uh, to that cistern. So we work really hard at trying to be sustainable. Sounds like you used your gifts very well. I've tried. I I think the the real answer for that question is in your book many times. I was struck by the number of times I saw three words repeated over and over in your book. And I bet Cheryl Ann can tell us what they are. Well, you're putting me, is it faith, hope, and love? Absolutely. It's the gospel brings us those three words every day. And that was, you know, one of the themes through the book that I saw that sustained you through all this. Cheryl Ann and I end all of our outside documents with those three words that get mailed out or emailed out because that's how we live our lives with faith, hope, and love. Right. It's on Brit's gravestone. What advice do you have for parents or have you ever been asked to talk with parents who are in a similar situation with the loss of a child and what, what would you say to help them? 
I think before Brit died, I know for me personally, when you would see a parent on TV and they were functioning, you would say, how, I would say, how was that? And I can just, I'll just speak on it for moms. How was that mother? Like even out of bed, if that was one of my children, I could not get out of bed. I know that I couldn't because my children are everything. And then it happens to you and you don't know how you're going to get through it. And so I'll answer the question in, in two different ways. So for me, and I, and I will probably for them, what we have realized that everyone grieves differently and there's not one way or a wrong way of grieving. And so whatever that parent is feeling and grieving, that's right for them. And so there can't be any judgment. And from the very beginning, we have a large family and friends that, that have been with us from the very beginning. And we all grieve differently. Len and I grieve differently, but we have always been respectful of the fact that we know that we're different people and it's okay. And we're going to handle this differently. So I think that answers, what, I think, one part of that question. But I will say for me, my faith is, people say, have you questioned your faith? Have you left your faith? Have you in any way unwavered from your faith since this moment with Brittany? And I have to say, absolutely not. If anything, my faith has, I have doubled down on my faith. I still have a lot to learn and I still do a lot of work. But I just realized that God was with Brittany, Brittany's with him, and that this, why we're here on earth is just such a small, like what, why are we here on earth as for when we get to move on? And so I always say, like, the first person I called after we got the news about Brittany, meaning about the earthquake, was my sister and because I needed to call her. So she got to my mom before they heard it on the news. And my next phone call was to Father Madden, our family priest, and asked him to pray. And there wasn't even a question about it. And so for me, my faith has sustained me and will continue to sustain me. And I can't imagine going through a day without it. I think just like grieving, I think our faith can be different for each person. I've always had a, a strong faith. I was eight years old coming out of St. Stephen's Church on Hamilton Street in Worcester, Mass. And, and I could show you the spot on the sidewalk where God touched me, where God put his cloak of love over me. And, you know, I was afraid to cross the street. I was alone. I was the youngest of eight kids. And I, I've had unwavering faith since that day. And so even though such a horrific tragedy struck and, and cannot describe to anybody what it feels like to lose your daughter twice in 48 hours, I just, you know, I just cannot describe that to anybody. And so I have, you know, relied on God, relied on my relationship with God through this whole process. And it has been a process and a journey. And just, we feel bad for us, but I know, just to give you an example, I know there's 100,000 children in the U.S. dying every year uh, from fentanyl. And some parent has to bury that child. And so my heart goes out to them. My faith allows me to pray for them and to pray because I know the pain. Sherilyn and I know the pain of that journey. 
and what it's going to be like. So if you look up when the tidal wave hit Japan and it was an island off of Japan and one of the American girls, you know, was swept out to sea and the State Department made the mistake of calling the parents and saying, you know, hey, we got her. And so these parents thought that they were going to reunite with their daughter. And then I get the phone call from a producer with CBS TV and said, this was like four years after Britt passed. And they said, parents are devastated. They're in shock. I'm interviewing them. You know, could you talk to them? And it goes back to the question that was asked earlier. And I said, yeah, six months from now. Because they're numb, they're in shock, they're not going to know or remember anything I say. And so, you know, with that said, I have been asked, and it is, it's, it, it shakes your faith to lose a child, and I don't care who it is, but it strengthens your faith on the journey thereafter. And my faith is so much stronger now than it was before. And I always felt that I had a strong relationship with God. So yeah, it's the Paschal mystery. It's that whole, you're talking about that dying and rising. They're always talking about like with Jesus, death and resurrection and what we go through in our spiritual lives. And that's exactly what you're doing. Again, I'm referring to your book. You mentioned early on in the grieving process that at the funeral for Brit, you didn't want people to make her out a saint. You yes. wanted her to be there, warts and all, and remembered as she truly was. And that's something that I've got to say, if God puts saints on the earth to raise our hearts and minds and lives to him and to be better people, then she might not be a saint with a capital S, but she's certainly a saint with a little S and guiding you and your family along the road. And she really has made that tremendous impact. She had a short life, unfortunately. And, you know, as, as I say this, thinking about my own son who was born the same year as, as Britt. And, uh, you know, it's just, just tremendous that she may not have been a saint. She may have tried your patience. But look at what she has given you. Look at the payoff so far. Nothing replaces her being with you, but this might be the next best thing. Thank you for those kind words, Pat. That's very nice. And just to bring a little humor to this, about two years after Brit had passed, we started getting messages on Facebook in New York from Long Island. A woman wrote and said, our pastor talked about Brit today at church. And then someone from, it was either Utah or California, same thing. Well, about six different pastors talked about Brit with the story, the gospel of Lazarus and Jesus bringing him back from the dead. And I got very curious. I said, how were all these priests and ministers talking about Brit? And we, I looked into it and started researching. And finally, a priest in Long Island had told me he belongs to a service with get the, the preaching of the gospel. 
and it was a professor in New Hampshire. I called him to thank him. And I said, it's amazing that you wrote that story or preached about Brent and shared it and all these other pastors and priests. So we that was the closest I think Brent got to sainthood that day. So that was really special. No, she's uh, not done yet. Her, she's not oh, done. How many people have, has, has she touched besides the kids in the program? How many donors? How many volunteers? What would you think? Oh, a minimum 50,000 to 100,000. 50,000. Hey, Pat, what'd you do today? Yeah, I walked the dog and scared somebody. Yeah. yeah. Now, I am going to go tonight and talk to my RCIA class, and I guarantee we'll be talking about this interview and about Britt's special gift to the world with the orphanage. And I'll be drumming up support personally. I can't wait till travel restrictions are lifted because I want to come and see your kids. I want to sing songs. I want to play games. (laughs) And I want to feed them. Oh, so we'd love that. We would yeah. love that. And we pray. We ask people for prayers for leadership in Haiti so that the government can get reestablished. And Kenya is supposed to head up the UN International Force. They were supposed to come in a month ago, twice the Kenyan Supreme Court has delayed it 14 days and 14 days. And People are starving, and and I say this again from UNICEF and the UN, two million people are starving in Haiti right now because of the lack of ability to leave their houses to, and when I say house, the type of shack, and it's just so sad, and I know Jesus is crying because it is just the saddest thing to see when you can, so thank you. And by the way, on Saturday, November 18th at 5 p.m., listeners, you can tune in to the YouTube channel of the Paulist Center in Boston to see Cheryl Ann and Len receive the Isaac Hecker Award for Social Justice. But it's a great thing, and everybody, YouTube, November 18th, 5 p.m. is the live, and I'm sure it'll probably stay up there after that if you want to check it out. So we congratulate you. We are honored to have you guys. And uh, I don't know about Pat, but I want to be like you guys when I grow up. I'm amazed and humbled. And I not only want to be like Britt, I want to be like Len, and I want to be like Cheryl Ann. Yeah, make, you make us proud to be part of this organization, you guys. You really do. So, uh, Len and Cheryl Ann, it has been a pleasure this interviewing you and uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you all for having us, and it was wonderful to meet you. Thank you all, and we look forward to seeing you on the 18th. God bless. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com deaconspod.com that's d-e-a-c-o-n-s with an s deacons plural pod all one word dot com and of course we'd love to hear your comments at our email address which is deaconspod again with an s deacons at paulist.org that's p-a-u-l-i-s-t dot org love to hear from you 
That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.